This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. My name is Grace Johnson. I am the assistant editor at the Peninsula Pulse. And today I am joined by a special guest, Edward McPherson. Welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yes. So this year, Edward is the nonfiction judge for the Hell Prize. In addition to that, he's the author of three books, uh, most recently being The History of the Future, American Essays. He received a Guggenheim Fellowship, Pushcart Prize, and the Penn Southwest Book Award, among other accolades. So we're going to sit down and learn a little bit more about his life as a writer and then chat a little bit about the Health Prize at the end. So starting off, I always, you know, like to do kind of big, broad questions. So um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what led you to this creative writing type of career? And is that something you envision doing from a young age. Oh my, you want you want origin story. Yes. Yeah. Well, I you know I grew up in Texas, Dallas. I think if I were if you'd caught me in like fifth grade, I would have told you I wanted to be some kind of scientist, like mm-hmm. a chemist, or I don't know. I was always sort of carrying around a box of machine parts that I was convinced I could turn into like a robot or an mm-hmm. airplane or something. Yeah. But then. You know, I was a voracious reader, I think, like most writers I know. And then I had, like, one of those just, you know, life-changing teachers in seventh grade uh, who sort of really opened up the English, you know, English class to me. And then there's no looking back. I figured I would be an English major. I went to college in rural Massachusetts. I was an English major. And then there I had, but, I, you know, I think I was, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was going to mm-hmm. be some sort of person who hopefully got paid to, to read books for a living. But I didn't know what that meant, you know, maybe grad school or maybe going to publishing. And then senior year, I had, you know, my first creative writing class and it just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, that's it. That's what I want to do. How can I do that? So I you know, went from sort of reading to writing, although they're both obviously intertwined. I got a job as an editorial assistant for a writer living in the middle of nowhere, Vermont, for the year after college. And then eventually I moved to New York, where I worked in sort of magazines and newspapers and ended up writing my first book while I was living there. So that is sort of it in a nutshell, although, although I'll say I always thought I was going to be a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. I think that was just something that I knew more of, like quote-unquote creative nonfiction, which is such a goofy phrase, but that's the best we have, I guess, mm-hmm. kind of wasn't on my radar, certainly not in high school and a little less in college. And so I figured I'd write fiction. But then, you know, the the way I found to get paid to write was at a magazine. And suddenly I was doing these little dinky magazine assignments that were still kind of blowing my mind. And I thought, this is just so bizarre. You can't make this stuff up. And yeah. I actually went back and got an MFA in fiction after I'd already written two nonfiction books. But most of my work these days is in, is in nonfiction, which yeah. I just love. So you're well-versed with kind of the magazine newsroom like we are here. <laughs> well, it's like a great, I mean, I, I God, I learned so much writing these little, you know, dinky one page. Uh, yeah, I was lucky to work for an arts editor. So I would write a little squib on an opera star or a, you know, a ballet dancer or something that I knew nothing about, but I would have to like 
spend, you know, the afternoon learning everything I could and then go watch something and then write up, you know, 200 words. And just doing that sort of wash, rinse, repeat over and over, I, I just learned so much about writing, yeah. even though these aren't necessarily topics that I, you know, I go to my work these days. Mm-hmm. And then kind of speaking on that, your work as a nonfiction writer, like I had mentioned, you have the three books out right now, and they seem very, I don't want to say niche topics, but kind of niche topics. Um, <laughs> what? So your first one, you Great had... Space. Great You can say it. Boring? What, what, what niche? What do you mean? <laughs> not boring. Definitely not boring. Okay, so there's the one book, you have a book about Buster Keaton. Mm-hmm. The other one is a book all about bridge. And I'm very yeah. curious on that one in particular, because actually my best friend and I in the last few weeks have been... Like, okay, we need to learn how to play, you know, more card games and things of that uh, nature. So getting into like bridge or cribbage. And <laughs> so I'm kind of curious how you landed on, you know, starting with those two topics sure. for these books for those, and then kind of getting into your current one, which seems a little bit different in yeah. tone and topic. Sure. And I'll try to move quickly because I'm sure you don't want to hear me natter on and on about my books ad nauseum. But yeah, so the first book, I was working at a magazine. I was living in New York. The magazine, which was Talk Magazine, it was like sort of this early 2000s heyday of you know synchronicity. It was like Tina Brown had just left The New Yorker. She was editing this magazine. It was getting money from like Hearst and Miramax and it was just sort of a, a weird, wild place to work, but it folded. So I was out, it was, it was in the process of losing my job. And mm-hmm. I just happened to mention to a friend, an older friend who had written a film book for Favor and Favor, the British publisher. I just happened to tell him that I was obsessively watching old Buster Keaton movies. And Buster Keaton is like a silent film star from the 20s or who peaked in the 20s. And he's kind of like the number two behind Charlie Chaplin in mm-hmm. his day. But the movies were just so fantastic. And this was back when you could, I mean, well, I lived in New York, so they, and they screened them so I could see them in the theaters every now and then. But I also, it was back in the day of like video stores, and I was going to video stores and renting them obsessively and watching them on my tiny little TV perched on my dresser in my, you know, minuscule Manhattan apartment. But I just thought they were so modern and so mm-hmm. like unexpected, these films. They're really dark and beautiful and strange. And so, Anyway, he knew just through the grapevine that Faber, this British publisher, was looking for a Buster Keaton biography. And so with all the sort of daring of a 20-something, you know, I was like, oh, I'll do that. And so I wrote a book proposal and just got, you know, just dumb luck. They they liked it. And that was my first book, which I, you know, started to write right as I lost my magazine job because it was folding. And then from there, you know, further dumb luck, I wrote that book, Hold Up in This Apartment, which happened to be on you know, it was kind of a rundown residential hotel in Manhattan, and the top floor of that was a bridge club. Mm-hmm. And so while I was inside writing my book about silent film, I would just see all these people in the building, really eccentric, totally inscrutable, all the way from sort of like, you know, your sort of stereotypical little old ladies, quote unquote, at a bridge club to like, you know, these sort of math geniuses to these like, there's this weird moment where like a lot of people in fashion were playing, but anyway, so mm-hmm. I was like, who are these people? Why do they, they have no interest in talking to anyone but themselves. And they're just talking in code about some card game that they're obsessed with. So I actually, at that point I had an agent and I mentioned to her, like, I don't want to do any more film books. I'm sort of settled. I had to say, but there's this card game that seems really weird. And this was back when like poker was really sort of having its moment. And it was, I was like, well, why are we playing poker and not bridge? Cause bridge is supposedly the, you know, 
the people who know say it's the best game we've ever come up with. It's deeper than chess. Like mm-hmm. computers can play chess and beat us at chess. Computers can't beat us at bridge because yeah. it's a, it's a much more complicated game and it involves like human partnership and all these communication that is sort of beyond AI right now. So anyway, I was like, well, could there be a bridge book? And she's like, yeah, let's do it. You know, it was really focused on the people. Like I didn't know how to play bridge. Mm-hmm. So I got a, a 90 year old bridge partner named Tina and convinced her, like we learned together. And then I convinced her to go to travel with me to the bridge championships where of course we like finished dead last, but I profiled all these eccentric people obsessed with bridge from like, you know, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates were playing bridge online. And then there are also these like young kids who dropped out of their PhD programs and were basically just hired guns. Like rich people would pay them to be their bridge partner and they'd squire them around the country there's like a big money tournament in Vegas. There's a big bridge culture in England. Strangely, Gatlinburg, Tennessee is a huge bridge mecca for like mm-hmm. one week out of the year. So uh, it was just sort of a picture of this sort of lost card game because bridge used to be huge in America. Yeah. Like at one point, supposedly bigger than baseball. But it was really just a portrait of obsession and this game and, and why these people were kind of chasing this elusive game that they could never really master. And then it was a real nice compliment to the first book, which was kind of me inside watching old black and white movies or digging through the archives. You know, Buster Keaton was long gone and most of you know his contemporaries and people who knew him were all dead. Whereas the bridge book was, I had to go out in the world and like, you know, convince people to talk to me and, and, and go to these tournaments and go to these places. So it was a nice sort of almost direct opposite yeah. sort of writing experience in the Keaton book. Yeah. And then the next book was a book of essays and it took much longer to write. But those were, at least that had a more governing principle. And this was after I'd gone back and gotten an MFA in fiction and I was a little older. And that book, it's called The History of the Future, but it's about American places where the past is sort of erupting into the present in unexpected or uncomfortable ways. But it was also just like, I loved writing a book of essays because I could just move from topic to topic. And as soon as I got sort of tired of it, I could I could write the next essay. Mm-hmm. We actually, during the summer up in Door County, there's a duplicate contract bridge group that plays during the summer. <laughs> well, there you go. Duplicate is, you know, that's the, that's the way the purists play. It's, it takes, it removes the, a lot of the element of luck out of it. Yeah. It's fantastic. I, I mean, I don't have time to play as much as I did back when I was writing that book, but yeah, it's a great game and uh, I loved it. And I'm not super, super mathy. Yeah. If you're, if you're at all like logical or mathematically bent, then, oh my God, you'll go down the rabbit hole. The um, history of the future, the different essays for people kind of wanting to know more about that, you kind of explore different places in the United States. Mm-hmm. How did you kind of land on the places that you did? And do you have a favorite essay in the collection? <laughs> oh, that's hard. Well, I wrote them, I'll say I wrote them piecemeal and I didn't, I didn't initially start out knowing I would write mm-hmm. a book of essays. Like I'm, I'm a big fan of that. You know, supposedly he said it, although I've never actually been able to find where. So it's attributed to E.L. Doctorow. And it's, it's about the amount of like faith involved in writing. Mm-hmm. And he says, it's like driving in a car at night in the fog. You can only see as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole way that way. So like, you know, I, I started with just the first essay in that book, which was about Dallas, which is where I happened to grow up. And it was coming up on a big anniversary of the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they were rebooting on cable television, the soap opera Dallas, like it was Dallas 2.0 was mm-hmm. launching. And it was this kind of weird moment where I thought like, oh, who shot J, you know, JR and who shot JFK? And so I wrote about Dallas, the city and Dallas, the TV show. 
and what it was like to grow up in Dallas and nobody talked about JFK. But then also I went down and spent um, some time on the set of the new Dallas and sort of watched. So anyway, but, but, you know, I, I didn't know that I was just sort of feeling my way into this like history of assassination and TV and conspiracy and all this. And, you know, that could have been a book. It was, ended up being a long essay. And then, you know, I went on to the next, which is like a, an essay about Gettysburg, which is a town that my, you know, my family comes from, but it's about sort of, that one was more of a personal essay about like fathers and mm-hmm. daughters and my wife and I have a daughter and like history and what gets passed down. But then, you know, there's a long essay about St. Louis where my wife and I had just moved about the world's fair and 1904 and sort of race and urban planning and sort of systemic racism in St. Louis. And each, anyway, each essay in there felt like it could be a book. And my agent, mm-hmm. who I just love so much, she's endlessly patient, would be like, all right, you've spent a year researching the history of St. Louis or nuclear weapons. There's one about the atomic bomb. And I, I go out and I, I visit the Trinity site in New Mexico. And, and she's like, all right, well, are you going to write a book about that? You know, you spent <laughs> a couple months, a couple of like, you know, nine months working on this 50 page essay. And I'm like, no, that's, that's it. That's all I want. So I, I put them together one at a time. And maybe I had the next essay in my head. You know, I think, okay, when I finish this, I'll start the essay on New York, which is about like being young and nostalgia and also 9-11 and underground New York City subway tunnels and things like that. And then I would finish that and start the next one. And, okay, well, what's my next one? Well, maybe it's about North Dakota and the boomtown and the you know, the Bakken oil boom, but also the boom in paleontology, all these dinosaurs they're pulling out of the earth up there. And it was just, you know, bit by bit, I somehow inched my way into a whole essay collection. And I was really anxious because it, it took me like longer than the other books to write. It took like five years oh. to put together, which was which was slow for me. You know, also, we'd, mm-hmm. we'd had a kid during that time and I'm, I'm now full time teaching, you know, and, and teaching. Obviously, I love teaching, but it, it drastically reduces your writing time. So, you know, it, it was fine that it took so long, but I was really scared when I read the whole manuscript and the book ends in L.A., that like, you know, wouldn't cohere. It wouldn't be an essay collection. It would just be kind of like a greatest hits, random mixtape of essays. Mm-hmm. And luckily it did. Thank God. But because I was still me over those five years and I had the same like aesthetic and political, you know, yeah. obsessions or whatever over that time. But it was really sort of, you know, I, that one felt a bit by my seat of my pants because I didn't really know what was going to happen next. And then eventually I kind of had enough essays and I had a quasi geographic coverage you know i couldn't go everywhere but i had you know it wasn't like all the essays were set in the northeast or something i had some mm-hmm. you know I, I got around the map a little bit and i thought okay well, i think this is this is an essay collection but i wrote it very differently than the other two i i didn't plan as much i could only really see as far as the next essay yeah. did that even answer your question yes <laughs> at, at this point i can't even remember what it was <laughs> well and going into that and i've been thinking you know kind of about you had made it you know a comment earlier on you know this quote, creative nonfiction kind of genre and, you know, writing in this style, there's kind of like a a balance between and kind of like all of this fact, a little bit of like author kind of interpretation almost and like a little Mm -hmm. bit of self that gets put into these. I think if there are other people, you know, looking at or working on kind of like essay collections, um, you know, similar to yours, do you have any thoughts or advice on, you know, kind of balancing this, your personal history with, you know, fact or finding that through line to tie everything together? Right. 
I mean, it's, it's tricky. And I think it's, you know, obviously we, <laughs> we have multiple selves within us and I think yeah. you're trying to figure out which self and it's just going to be a writing self because you're never really going to fully embody yourself in a, in an essay. There's always an, uh, you know, a way it's kind of, you've adopted a persona for that essay or it's a slice of you that's going into that essay. And it's, um, you know, I, I don't go into an essay knowing, oh, this essay is going to be like 90% personal, you know, rooted in my personal experience and about me and, mm-hmm. you know, and then 10% focused on something external, the other, you know, I don't know that. I, it's more like, oh my God, I'm obsessively looking at these views at night of the Bakken oil boom and these flares and lights. And I'm also obsessively reading about dinosaurs that mm-hmm. they're pulling out of the earth. And I don't know how I'm going to connect those and, and how much I'm going to appear or if it's just going to be about, you know, sort of more journalistic or historical or whatever. You don't know, but then I think in revision, that's when you're sort of tweaking those knobs and you realize, because I'm always, the way I like to work, and you, maybe I should have said it in the last ex- essay collection, was to, to bring in sort of disparate things like mm-hmm. that maybe wouldn't neatly coexist in an essay and try to, you know, make connections between them. So like, you know, wh- why would you compare something pretty serious about the assassination of a president with like a goofy soap opera, right? Yeah. So like, but I liked that sort of tension there, or what does nostalgia in leaving New York essays, what, how does that rhyme with like 9-11 and underground subway tunnels? Like what, you know? So I like sort of braiding together disparate topics to sort of try to find meaning. But yeah, it's, uh, I think I never know in the beginning what it is. I have an attraction and it's like, oh, I, I can't stop reading about nuclear weapons and how, you know, how horrible <laughs> what like yeah. a horrible bedtime reading this is, but but then you but then you have, you start writing it and and that's where I kind of figure it out. Oh, this really is about growing up a kid in the Cold War, or it's not. It really is about something else, like what happened to downwinders in New Mexico, you know. And that's mm-hmm. where you figure out how much of the personal is going to be, in the, or at least how I figure out how much of the personal is going to occupy the essay, and when I'm going to try to be a little more effaced and you know really just trying to hand over the mic to someone else to tell their story kind of yeah. situation. Versus like, you know, picking up the thing and singing an aria that's all about me, me, me. I guess it's just like, you know, it's a gut instinct and then you, so much happens in revision. I dabble in writing, let's say I definitely consider myself more of a reader than a writer, but I've found a very similar experience when I was doing creative writing in college and the little bit of writing that I do now you know, the first draft for me is always just kind of like throw everything that you have on the page and then (laughs) you start to refine it in those, that editing process. It's very important process. Yeah, it is. I mean, and it's, you know, it's deeply inefficient. I think it's like, and that's really hard to like Mm -hmm. make peace with that. Um, And I'm always telling my students and then trying to remind myself gently that like, you know, this is, you're in theory, we're making art not to get too, you know, full of ourselves here and making art is, is going to be messy and inefficient mm-hmm. and you can't as much as you want to like grind it out or sort of like, you know, the little puritanical capitalist on your shoulder that's trying to, you know, yeah. chop, 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 you know, make it happen. You can't pre-plan as well. You have to like have room for accident and experiment. And, but in that first draft, like you said, you're just trying to get stuff down on the page and everything, you know, don't sort of censor, you know, cause you're just telling the story, whatever the story is, if it's a personal story or it's a, you know, a story about something else external to you. You're just trying to tell that story to yourself in the first draft. Mm-hmm. And then in re- revision, but in, in that first draft, that's where instinct and sort of like the mystical parts of writing, I feel like, occur. And then in revision is when you figure out, as you go back through that and see what you have, that's when you really figure out how to tell that story to a reader. 
but you don't know even what your story is until you write it down. Like, you know, I walk around in a sort of white noise haze and, you know, until I finally force myself to articulate how I'm feeling. Like, you know, most of the time I, I don't really know what I think about something until I try to write it down and really force myself to, to say the thing. And then once I've said the thing, I figure out, okay, how am I going to deliver that to a reader? You know, and that's where you like, you start playing with structure and maybe you, again, you're adjusting those dials that I was talking about. Yeah. And then kind of on that, you've briefly mentioned, um, you know, your work as a teacher mm-hmm. and, you know, I find, I talk to a lot of writers who are teachers and I think that's a really interesting relationship. And I'm always curious on how your work as a teacher influences your writing or the way that you write. Yeah. I mean, I, I love it. And of course, you know, not all writers have to be teachers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> teaching is, it takes so much of your time mm-hmm. um, and emotional headspace, et cetera, that, yeah, I always tell my students, like, you know, don't do this unless you really love it. But if you're lucky enough to love it, then it's it's fantastic. And, you know, I'm very grateful for my job. I It's hard to feel too sorry for yourself when you wake up and you're like, oh, my gosh, my job today is to read this book and then go sit in a room with a bunch of smart people and talk about it. Like, Mm -hmm. that is a gift. It is a different muscle than writing, necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, you know, during the semester, I don't get a lot of writing done because I'm just sort of, you know, my eyeballs are bleeding because I'm reading 200-page theses of the grad student, et cetera, or, you know, you're just Mm -hmm. just sort of constantly reading other people's prose, which is great. But then I get get summers to write. You know, that's what I do most of my writing, or maybe I can steal a day out of the week, particularly in the fall, to get sort of really embedded in my writing. But it's it's just so useful, because even when I'm reading and, and when I'm working with someone else on their prose to make it the way they want it, you know, I'm still training my ear. Like, you never fully arrive as a writer. You're always kind of becoming a writer and becoming a better reader. Mm-hmm. So these are the same skills I would go and then use on my own work, if, you know, when I'm looking at something I wrote. So like the selfish reason is you're still practicing these things and you're becoming better at them through talking to students. The other, I mean, there's so many times where I'm, I'll tell a student, we'll have a long conference about an essay that they're working on. And then I sit down, um, you know, of course I give a lot of advice. They, they want, they ask for advice and I give it. And then I sit down and I'm, gosh, I'm stuck in my writing. And I'm like, oh, you idiot. You need to do exactly what you were just telling that student, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. but I hadn't seen it until, you know, it's, it really is like, your writing will look different to you based on what you're, but also I just love being surrounded by people who, you know, care about books and care about yeah. reading and writing the same way I do. It's, it, that just feels like, a, you know, not to get too sappy, but a tremendous gift. Mm-hmm. For me, I know. So I went, I went to Lawrence university in Appleton and I was an English major there. And during mm-hmm. my, you know, years there as an English major, as one would suspect, there's, you know, a lot of reading and writing involved and everything. And so I was, my personal kind of interest in reading and writing had sort of diminished as I was taking up so much time to, you know, just focus on things. And then after school, I was Mm -hmm. not interacting with books the way that I used to in kind of a way that just didn't make it as enjoyable as it was. So for, you know, a year or two, like after school, it was just... I couldn't stop thinking about like anything that I would sit down to read, like, oh, what's my thesis statement or whatever. But um, (laughs) I attended the Denver Publishing Institute in 2019. And that's just Mm -hmm. like a month long crash course in publishing. And there's about 90 students in the program, um, I think, the year Mm -hmm. that I went. And being surrounded by all of these people and, you know, it was 
varied age. There were some kids like right out of the first four years of college. There were some older people, you know, in like their 50s and 60s that were looking to change careers or, you know, kind of incorporate some of this stuff into what they're currently doing. And just being surrounded by all those people that were just so passionate about this, about books and, you know, writing mm -hmm. and editing and you know, just the joy of reading was <laughs> so amazing. Like after that, I just, I'm just started consuming like crazy again. <laughs> and it was just that environment was amazing. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I feel like I've heard a similar thing and I always sort of try to remind my undergrads particularly to be like gentle on themselves when yeah. they graduate because, you know, they've just been on this treadmill, which is the education system in America. And, you know, they may not feel like <laughs> doing a deep dive into, you know, mm -hmm. whatever right upon graduation. But once they sort of realize they have regained control over their reading and writing lives, right, that it's all up to them and they can just sort of let interest be their guide, then yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous gift. But yeah, you, I think mm -hmm. you need a sort of moment to decompress. But yeah, reading can be a great way to remind yourself, like, it's this, I mean, it's not unlike writing. It's this weird mm -hmm. internal thing that happens inside your brain and your body. You know, your sort of your inner life is what's being sparked here. But it's also a form of communication with someone else. It's a way of sort of not being so alone, right? Mm -hmm. Reading someone else's work. You know, you go inside your office, hole up with your computer to write a book that's very solitary. But the idea is eventually to find a reader and connect. So it's this weird process by which you go inward to reach outward. And yeah, I mean, I, I find great community and kinship through the, the books I read, even, you know, whether the person's still walking the earth or not. Yeah. And then people who love that book, you know, also mm -hmm. become sort of, even if you know nothing about them, you're like, ah, oh, but we, we both had this experience through this thing. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwanee counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. Well, so far, we've kind of talked about what you have, you know, your previous works. Mm -hmm. The Guggenheim Fellowship that I mentioned, that was pretty recent. I believe you received that back in April, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. which yeah. is very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm still floating. <laughs> Can you talk about the results of this fellowship and what project you're going to kind of be working on sure. in the future? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a tremendous and wonderful and welcome surprise. You know, it's the kind of thing that writers sort of after they've written a couple of books apply for and you're supposed to apply for year in, year out. For, I think the average is like you apply six to nine years or whatever and you just sort of cross your fingers and hope because, you know, there's so much luck and chance involved. Mm -hmm. And it really, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tremendous gift and particularly what it is is a gift of time. So most writers I know, I mean, you know, you're not in it for the money. Writers want money to convert it to time and yeah. the time is time to write or to research or whatever. So yes, what this will allow me to do is I will spend the next year just working on my next book full stop. Like I won't mm -hmm. have other academic obligations. I won't teach, which, you know, I will miss. I will still see my students 
readings and whatnot, but I, I'll just have more time to finally write this book that I've been kind of working on for years, but only in fits and starts and certainly, you know, not at all during the pandemic because mm-hmm. it's just sort of too much. So I'm incredibly grateful and really excited. And already this summer, I think I've done, I've done more work on the book than I have in the you know, past three years. No. I won't go on too long, although it's like, you know, my agent probably prefers that if I had a better elevator pitch for the book, um, <laughs> but you propose a project to the Guggenheim. And so this okay. was the, it's sort of partly based on the books you've written because that you send them those and they've read those, but it's really about the, the book you're asking for support to write. And so this book is sort of focused on the idea of like the long view or the big picture, both both very literal and also kind of more metaphoric. So like the literal sense, and it's going to, again, assemble a bunch of different topics, mm-hmm. try to put them in conversation. So the literal is like all this geospatial intelligence happening in St. Louis, where I live. It's kind of a fancy word for using, you know, satellite pictures from the air to make decisions on the ground. And mm-hmm. So this is, goes everything from like, you know, drones, drones used for crops, for planning healthcare, for you know, mapping all sorts of things, also drones dropping bombs, you know, in places and sort of there's a big spy agency that's opening up its sort of central campus in St. Louis and they're, mm. they're building a new headquarters here and it's you know multi-million dollar thing. It's 90 city blocks that they tore down to build. So that in the city is really investing in geospatial intelligence. So it's, it's that in a very literal sense, like using these sort of aerial views looking down and that sort of power and privilege and control and all that sort of things. Also to more kind of metaphoric, there was a, a mania for bird's eye view maps that swept America sort of in, between 1825 and 1875 really was like the heyday where every little town wanted to have, you know, bird's eye view map of your town, you know, a picture of the town as if drawn from somebody sitting in a hot air balloon. But of course, there wasn't somebody in a hot air balloon. Yeah. It was this itinerant artist who went town to town and just knew, you know, good perspective drawing and would um, draw it up and get some subscribers and then send it off somewhere else to be lithographed. But this was like this thing that every town needed this. And of course, that also was a bit about like telling a story about the land and who owns the land. And it was a part enticement to get people to move and come to your city because look how grand it looks from the air. But also things like astronauts blasting themselves into space, the overview effect, that sort of supposed change in consciousness that's supposed to happen when you see the, the whole earth from space. You know, sort of knee shaking awe and realizing how precarious our position is. You know, I mean, I could go on and on. There's more and more topics. The pandemic will be in there, sort of not just contact tracing and surveillance and big tech, but also this sort of collapse and dilation of social distance. Oh, I don't know. There's more and more things are all going to be sort of in this stew. So, yeah, so what, what, you know, I'll, I'll go down to Fort Worth. We'll be my next trip to look at a bunch of these maps. And I've been writing, you know, I just read a couple books about 19th century lithographs. And I, I wrote a lot during, the only thing I could do during the pandemic was take notes. So I took a lot of notes about some of these things. Like I'd gone flying with a drone photographer before the pandemic. And so I was, that the city was using to sort of plan some like rain gardens and whatnot in various neighborhoods. And a lot of those issues that I was sort of looking into before the pandemic popped up during the pandemic, but in weird and unexpected ways. And of course, you know, aerial surveillance of the protests, you know, for social justice that erupted. And anyway, I kept seeing these things popping up. So the book is going to sort of trace that through the now. Yeah. And I, you know, I've put together a proposal and 
but I'm basically also just writing it as I go. It all sounds very wifty, but in general, my attack to get to these like big abstract concepts Mm -hmm. of like the long view is through the local and the particulars is typically how I like to do it. A futurist societies is, you know, is is something I'm interested in. I'll probably write about in the book, people trying to peek over the horizon. Yeah. It's a a big task that. that you are taking on. It sounds like. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's as always, it could just spiral. It could be, you know, everything and, and, and ultimately mm-hmm. mean nothing. So I'm really trying to collapse it down into the manageable. But but it's also, you know, I'm it's going to be a critique of this kind of thinking um, yeah. with also understanding that it can be useful in ways. Like, you know, like awe, I think, is a useful emotion that we need more of, you know, that sort of like shrinking of the self and like mm-hmm. mind blown, I think, you know, it does things. And yet, oh my God, we take sort of these aerial pictures to stand in for truth and make all these horrific decisions, you know, leaving leaving behind the people on the ground. Right? But, you know, big data, all these things are sort of being folded into this. Well, we have something to keep our eyes on, watch out for. <laughs> You're nice to say that. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> so as I had mentioned earlier, we are chatting today because Edward is going to be our nonfiction judge this year for the HAL Prize, which deadline to submit is coming up soon. I'll kind of go over at the end any more details, information for people on submitting and all of that. But to round out kind of our conversations, I wanted to ask, I have two more questions. First, Mm -hmm. when it comes to the HAL Prize, what are you as a judge going to be looking for in submissions? Gosh, I'll try to keep this short. You know, one of the things I love about nonfiction and I love teaching nonfiction is, you know, I have a sort of aesthetic bent and I write, you know, essays that mix the personal with the journalistic or whatever. Like that's sort of what I've been doing lately. But the wonderful thing about nonfiction is it is just such a baggy genre, right? Mm -hmm. And I read widely through it and we work with students who are just writing all kinds of things. So I love sort of everything. So I would encourage, you know, I mean, we're talking about a genre that has like sort of quote unquote literary journalism type things that might appear in the New Yorker on like a really good day all the way to like lyric essays that look like poetry that, and then also just, you know, straight up memoir, sort of classic mm-hmm. memoir, or personal essay. And, and I love all that. And I read all that. I don't necessarily always write each of those things, you know, I'll, I'll dip in and out, but that's what I love. And that's what keeps me excited about nonfiction is how it's just constantly expanding and redefining itself. So I'm excited just to see whatever comes across the transom. Like that's, thrilling for me. So, you know, what I like, I'd say, or what I'm drawn to would be just a sense that the writer, in whatever form they're working in, has some sort of control over what they're doing. And I know that sounds kind of nebulous, but like they're in control of the language, that I can trust them, that I can kind of let myself over. You know, if I'm in doubt or confused, it's a productive confusion or a productive doubt. Like they, they want me there. And it's not that I've you know, sort of accidentally like stumbled into confusion. It's that, you know, they've arranged this for me. And that's really exciting to feel that like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm in good hands. So really it's sort of, you know, it's on a language level or like, yeah, that they're playing, you know, that they have an instrument and they, they're playing it. They know how to play it. And a lot of that, again, would, I think comes into the revision where you sort of make these choices. But I mean, it's a bit of a dodge, right? I mean, because as soon as I say, I, I'm really hoping for this kind of essay, you know, the winner will be something completely awesome because I have no idea what's yeah. going to come in. Um, yeah. I'm really excited to judge the prize. I think one of the things that I have kind of come to, you know, realize about 
our contest in particular and something that I think is really great about it is so originally we had been publishing the winners and honorable mentions of our contest in our weekly paper, The Peninsula Pulse. Mm-hmm. And then back in 2019, the owners here had asked me, you know, to come up with some ideas on a different way that we might present these winners because we started getting a lot more submissions and it was just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, getting unwieldy. So I'm like, let's do kind of like a literary review kind of style thing for our publication. And in looking at a lot of other reviews, you know, they have kind of a feel that they're going for or topics that they're going for. Mm-hmm. You know, they they want the content to kind of fit their aesthetic, I guess, maybe is the way to put it. But mm-hmm. we really don't have that. We aren't looking to pigeonhole anything or be, you know, oh, this is a Door County publication. So it's about, you know, rainbows and sunshine and happy times. Um, (laughs) What, you know, people might consider uh, atypical, you know, Door County, but we are aware, you know, people have all different experiences, different stories, you know, different whatever it is that create just such diverse you know, all these diverse stories that it's, we have no idea what is going to come in every year. And that's great. it's really fun to just see the differences year to year and, you know, kind of what people put forth and, you know, you'll, you never know what you're going to get when you pick <laughs> up um, eighty one forty two review. It could be, you know, some similar things, some very different things. So, you know, we're just trying to reach as many writers as we can, as many readers as we can to just, you know, kind of have that collaboration of, you know, this is the creative community in Door County, introduce them to, you know, the world at large, I guess, (laughs) Um, which is a a big statement to say. And, you know, also bring in, yeah, yeah, bring in talents from elsewhere and kind of expose people to Door County to that. That's great. I mean, that's for me, one of the great thrills of nonfiction is that, right, I am, learning something about the world or I'm learning something, right? And uh, there's something new here. And and what I'm learning could be, again, it's not that I'm like, you know, learning another language. It's that I, you know, I'm learning about someone's, you know, the vexed relationship with their grandmother or whatever, or I'm learning a ton about like the reproductive habits of slime molds. Again, I don't even know if that's a thing, right? But it's something in the world that through the writer's gift is catching my eye and my sort of baseline, humdrum, mouth-breathing existence day-to-day mm-hmm. is suddenly coming alive in new ways because there's something I haven't ever learned or thought of. And yeah, maybe it's like rhyming with my inner life. You know, I, again, mm-hmm. I kind of know, but it, but I've never thought of it this way. And that's the really excitement, yeah. exciting thing. And that's, that's kind of irrelevant of topic or form, right? You're teaching me about yourself in the world in a new way. And that's like, you know, that is sort of the the moment when you're as a reader. Last question, similar to Mm -hmm. previous, but do you have any advice for people that are considering submitting to the HAL Prize or even just contests in general? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's probably not going to be anything shockingly new, but it's partly, you know, based on my own experience. I think I would let their own internal excitement and interest be their guide, you know, like, again, I think it's when writers think like, oh, I'm going to write this subject sounds sexier or more exciting or is even just simpler to explain to my friends that I'm writing about this. And so I should really write 
that versus this other thing that's sort of keeping me up at night and it's plaguing me and I, but I don't really can't articulate it yet and I don't know why but I'm really drawn to it and maybe it's bordering on obsession like when someone comes to me saying like yeah which essay should I write next I'm always like oh go with the obsession even if you can't you don't know why you know don't play it safe so if you have like three or four things you're considering sending, send your favorite. Like don't overthink it, right? Yeah. Just if the one you're, if you're excited about it and it's interesting and confusing and thrilling and alive to you, then it's going to be that for a reader. You know, we don't, uh, there's nothing, you don't want to read something that you sort of already can see around the corner and know yeah. what's coming. That said, for me, sometimes I have to temper that with, I'm always in love with the thing I'm writing now. And I usually don't like the thing I just finished, mm-hmm. you know, because it can even be a little painful for me to talk about previous books, like these things that I dedicated years to. And now all I see is the problems and how I would change them. So like, but it's, I think it's sometimes a good impulse. So the, the essay that I, you know, just finished, and if it's a first draft, I usually counsel people not to send it, even if you're just thrilled with it. Because in like three weeks or four weeks, you're going to see some places that you could have changed versus the essay you finished last year and, you know, has gone through a couple of revisions and feels more finished, quote unquote, but also maybe a little more settled and, and less thrilling because it's old news. You know, for something like this, for a contest or even like for an application, I usually say, you know what, send the one that you've done a couple of rounds of revision on. Mm-hmm. Don't go with your sort of current crush. That's my two cents. Well, there you have it, everyone. Little info dump time before we wrap up here. So the Hell Prize, we are accepting submissions through September 1st. We do nonfiction, fiction, poetry, and photography. This year, we have our wonderful panel of judges this year. We have Toya Wolf is our fiction judge. Alan Morris is our photography judge. And Sean Hill is joining for poetry. I have chatted with all of um, our other judges as well earlier this year throughout the summer. So you can find those interviews and learn more about them if you'd like at DoorCountyPulse.com. I also have to thank our contest partners right on Door County and the Peninsula School of Art who have been incredible. The art school has recently just kind of joined us on for in a more involved capacity this year and really helping kind of bring the same attention to our photography contest as Right On does with our writing. So we're really grateful to both of them for their support and helping us find judges and, you know, create programming. So I encourage everyone to definitely go check them out, check out what classes they have um, and what they're offering. They're really great um, organizations up here and we're very thankful to have them with us. And then we have 8142 Review, which I mentioned is the publication that houses our Hell Prize winners and honorable mentions. We still have volume one and volume two available to purchase at doorcountypulse.com slash shop. All of that money that we get from, you know, submissions and the sale of these goes back to support the contest and our judges um, and being able to offer them something for their assistance. So it's just a, you know, a great way to support the literature arts in the community. All of the details, where to submit guidelines and everything like that, you can find at thehowprize.com. So we just are, it's August already now. So we're, you know, kind of getting into that. We're about a month away from contest closing. So now is the time to look at your you know, what you've got going on, do your, you know, your revisions and get those submissions in. So anything else that you um, would like to say as we kind of close this up? Thanks to everyone who submits for 
you know, letting me read your work. I'm really excited for that. Awesome. Well, thank you again for spending this time with me. I really appreciate it. We're all really looking forward to seeing what everyone puts out there. So thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the next one. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.